Hey, welcome to another exciting edition of the Give Me Liberty podcast of the Standing for Freedom Center right here at Liberty University. What an interesting turn of events this last week. The State of the Union Address, President Joe Biden addressing joint members of Congress. We discuss all of that, our first reactions, and even critical thoughts about the new American political landscape. Are we in a postmodern presidency? That's a question we'll discuss with my friend, Jen Ellis, on the Give Me Liberty podcast, starting now. And welcome back to the Give Me Liberty podcast. I'm joined by a very special guest who is a friend of mine who needs no introduction. She's host of Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio, also host of the Jenna Ellis podcast on Salem Media. Welcome, Jenna Ellis. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. It's always so great to have these kind of in-depth conversations, especially focused around liberty, the Constitution, American values, all of those things. So thanks. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm honored that you were able uh, to jump on with us today to basically give a analysis of the State of the Union address earlier this week. Uh, President Joe Biden essentially kind of soft launching his reelection bid, using that platform to do it. The first thing I wanna hear from you is just your analysis overall. Uh, how did you take that speech? What was, what was your, <laughs> your overall reaction? And then we'll get into some of these details. Yeah, well, uh, my initial impressions is that I've never heard of the act and the act, um, which is kind of, you know, exactly what he uh, mentioned. And so some of those things, I think, were just evidenced how uh, really not mentally competent Joe Biden is and why the Democrat Party is very concerned about this potential a re-election bid from Joe Biden. I mean, he showed some classic signs of dementia, which uh, was also getting angry at some things um, and, and at some points that really didn't seem to mesh with what he was saying or trying to say. So I think the state of the union, if we're talking about Joe Biden's brain and mental health capacity, is that the 25th Amendment is very relevant here. And that was the biggest takeaway overall, is that uh, America is no longer projecting strength. We are projecting mm. a very weak leadership uh, that is subservient to uh, China, subservient to some of these other um, foreign uh, powers on the national stage. And our enemies are watching. I mean, as recently as uh, this Chinese so-called weather balloon, but we think, and I would venture a guess to say that we know, it was more of a trial balloon to see exactly what the response would be from the Biden administration. And, uh, you know, the response, of course, was sure, we'll let it traverse the entire continental United States before shooting it down and saying, don't worry, folks, we, we've got a handle on this. So the fact that Joe Biden said, in conclusion, the State of the Union is that America is strong, Nobody really believes that. And mm. that is a really big problem, especially if the Democrats are looking at trying to reelect Joe Biden in 2024. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, that is a very good point. He did say that at the, at the end of uh, his speech. And I'll just say it was very underwhelming when I looked at uh, the audience, the reaction of people, kind of what they're taking in, I remember how Barack Obama was received by Democrats. I don't think that many of the Democrats in that room 
uh, during the State of the Union actually believed him when he said that. Right. Uh, it, you know, it, totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they, you're exactly hopeful for that. And they want to pretend that they're going along with it. And they, you know, stand up and applaud when he's talking about, uh, you know, things like projecting that the entire police force of the United States is somehow racially biased. And we have all of these other problems and, you know, oh, we're going to combat inflation and, you know, look at this overwhelming growth of um, the economy, which is a complete fiction, uh, given yeah. that, uh, you know, COVID, of course, completely harmed our economy. And now that we're making a slight recovery, he's taking credit for it. I mean, there was nothing whatsoever about, you know, hey, the State of the Union is strong. I mean, when you have um, just two years ago, $1.79 was the price of not only a gallon of gas, but also a dozen eggs. And now you see the price of both of those things that have increased, um, you know, 500 a thousand percent i mean it's just it's it's laughable and it doesn't mirror reality and so it it makes you uh kind of sit back and say okay are these democrats just projecting you know yay we're hopeful because our party's actually in power or are they so delusional that they actually believe what he's saying and either of those realities is not okay yeah he said i i want to point on one thing you, you mentioning the jobs and the economy he mentioned at one point, we've created 12 million new jobs, uh, more created in two years than any other president. And what's ironic about that statement, I think it's the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually says, no, Mr. President, it's 2.7 million jobs in the past two years. That 10 million, that other 10 million are jobs that already existed. People were returning back to their jobs after the lockdowns, but he's counting that in his number as though, you know, this is something my administration did. It's like, no, you withheld those jobs, those 10 million jobs, and then you let them go back. Well, so, it'd be the same it, thing and the same irrationality as uh, someone who is managing a household income budget spends money, and then when they decide to to uh, go and return the product and they get a refund, counting that as new income. It's not right. the same thing. I mean, you can't yeah. count that. It's just you're going back to what the status quo was. You're not actually gaining anything. It's not income. It's simply being refunded. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that there were not just Republicans in the room. Certainly we saw Mike Lee's reaction, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I was kind of joking as I was watching, joking to myself and some friends, you know, Kevin McCarthy making eyes probably across the room. Some of those Republicans who barely let him become speaker, he was on his best behavior last night. Uh, but there were the, the reactions from those in the room that it was clear these things are lies. Now, I want to I want to walk into this, you know, this part, which is, is this the new normal, you know, of American politics? It seems as though everything has devolved into this base uh, reality where it is no longer about championing championing our, our ideals, our principles, uh, ensuring um, public trust in our institutions, right? In the rule of law, uh, you do a lot when it comes to constitutional re constitutional law and and, um, and and maintaining our legal integrity as a country. Um, talk a little bit about this. It, it, this this situation. It's almost like a tangential reality. We're not in the same country we were ten years ago. 
No, we aren't. And, uh, you know, and, and I agree with you, of course, that, you know, Joe Biden didn't write that speech. And, you know, even uh, historically presidents in recent history who do have all of their um, mental and executive functions available have speechwriters. And, um, you know, so that's nothing new. But the difference is the executive officer, you know, the president of the United States, actually has the mental capacity to know what he's saying and to actually read it and participate in uh, that kind of, of response and reaction and say, oh, well, let's edit some of these sections. And you have to wonder how much did Joe Biden actually know and participate in the editing of this speech, or did he just get up and read a teleprompter, which may explain why he went off script a couple of times. It almost appeared to me like he was reading it for the first time, which, of course, mm -hmm. he did a picture um, the day before saying, you know, that he was he was preparing with his little milk and cookies, which I thought was, you know, that's a sure projection of strength there, Grandpa, you know, your milk cookies over the State of the Union address. But um, but he almost appeared like someone with dementia who would forget that. And as he's reading it off of the teleprompter, it's almost like he's reading it for the first time. So, yeah. so that's a, that's a really odd situation compared to um, other presidents in recent history. But then to your question about is this the new normal, I think it is. And the reason mm. that, unfortunately, is that the State of the Union, if we just isolate last night's presentation, that presentation is geared in the reality of the 21st century as a medium to message in sound bites to a news-driven, television-oriented culture that brings it apart for political purposes and around our polarizing bias. And so instead of um, the contextualized intention of what our founders wanted when they required in the Constitution that from time to time, the President of the United States shall give a State of the Union address to Congress. Um, that was literally advising Congress. It wasn't meant to be an address to the nation. It was meant yeah. to be more of an internal dialogue and discussion. But what this has devolved into is a platform for platitudes and for a projection of strength. I mean, no president, regardless of party, is going to get up in the modern era and be like, guys, the State of the Union is is not strong. The State of the Union is anything other than like 110%. They're not going to do that because they would mm -hmm. be admitting failure. And so yeah. what this has become is just a method of trying to convince the American people to increase the job approval rating of the president. That's all that it is. And you could see that reaction from the different media networks. You could see that reaction on Twitter. And you could see that reaction even with all of the memes that were generated um, from even some of my favorite accounts. I mean, my own Twitter account, by the way. I mean, I you know, my commentary was um, in part based on, you know, what Kamala Harris and First Lady uh, Jill Biden were wearing. I mean, that's, that's kind of what this has devolved into is just a four television reality show instead of the constitutionally prescribed method of actually informing Congress. None of that happened last night. And I don't expect that that is going to change while we are still in a culture that values sound bites over political philosophy. Yeah, I 100% I agree. The way they're going to cut that speech up 
and it's going to be curated for nightly news or even social media. Let's be honest, most people probably not even turning on, um, you know, nightly news anymore. They're not watching mainstream media as much as they're going to Instagram. They're going to Twitter. Those things will be sliced and diced and the algorithms will take hold and there'll be components of the speech that will sound probably in their isolation, not being contextualized, might sound good, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it, it really is uh, disseminated in such a way uh, to really isolate the points of the speech that they wanna make to the base uh, rather than taking it as the whole. And, and that's where the gaslighting part comes in. The parts where uh, there, there were different prescriptions that were made, um, we won't get into all of them, but you know, he mentioned something like an, a ban on assault weapons, but he used in the context of that, a story about a semi-automatic pistol, not an assault we weapon. He didn't even define what assault weapons were. Uh, and, and to your point, when that was being read from a teleprompter, it's not clear that he even understands what it is that he's reading. Um, th th that's just one component. There was another part where he talks about Republicans wanting to see the sunsetting of Social Security and Medicare. Uh, and then there was, a, there was a kind of a guffaws, kind of a reaction, just a, a gasp from the, the audience uh, from several members. Now that's not true. I mean, that was a huge yeah. moment, I thought, yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then, then he kind of backtracked from that. But there were moments where I don't think he had command of the content of that speech. So it was like he was reading... Uh, like like for the first time with some kind of surprise even. Uh, so I'll just tell you, I read children's books, right? To kids, my kids. And um, if it's a new book and I haven't read it, I don't know where the points of emphasis are. I read with inflection and I read with voice, you know, uh, trying to do different accents for my kids. If I haven't read the story before, then I'm gonna be surprised even with, oh, that was a question. There's a question mark on the end of that statement. He was reading a speech much in that way. Um, three things that come to mind. These are the things that right now, if you're looking at polling data, um, you know, the average, let's say with real clear politics and Reuters and, um, all the rest, it's around 43%. If you get into the specifics about the economy, about crime and about immigration, the border, he's polling very, very low. And those seem to be the kitchen table items. Oh, also education. Mm -hmm. And by education, we're not talking about more money for teachers. By education, we're talking about what is in, in the best interest of the American family and the child. It seems as though from that speech, everything was from the standpoint of special interests, more special interests, giving more money to unions, even forming more unions. There was a a certain moment where he was talking about the food service industry and he was talking about yeah, Indies, those McDonald's and Wendy's employees. I mean, that's exactly, cool. that's exactly right. So he's referring to all these things and it's like, it sounds like instead of improving the things that matter, the kitchen table items, it's more government control, more government collectivism. So inflation, immigration, crime, any of those that you want to talk about? Yeah, well, I mean, all of the above. And I think that it was just a uh, rhetoric and it was trying to push the Democrat talking points onto the American people. And um, it was disassociated as well from rationality and a rational connection from 
policy that made sense to the outcome-driven right. objective. I mean, if you take um, the ban on assault weapons that you described, I mean, while he didn't even define what an assault weapon was, um, he used, unfortunately, and I think um, abused the memory of um, Tyree Nichols and had his parents in the audience um, to suggest, you know, that all law enforcement is somehow uh, overtly racist and, you know, some of these other tones um, that then led into this kind of um, gun control rhetoric. And it's unmoored from a reliance on the text of the Constitution and what is actually permissible in terms of government regulation. And so when you have all of the Republicans um, and, and a vast majority of not only sitting members of Congress, but also um, the average citizen who is immediately tweeting the words and the text of the Second Amendment shall not be infringed. Um, he gave, he gives no connection to the outcome-oriented perspective of the Democrats to what is actually permissible um, in the Constitution. I mean, this is why our founders, in their wisdom, limited powers of the government at large, but also specifically the federal government, so that you can't have exactly what Joe Biden proposed last night, which is just, we want to do this, and because we're in power, therefore we can. That's not what our system of government allows. And so in all of these instances, in everything that you just said, there is no rational connection that he gave last night from the outcome of what he wants in terms of policy to an ability textually, an enumerated power in the Constitution for the executive branch and his office. There just isn't. I mean, mm -hmm. if you take education, for example, the entire Department of Education is unconstitutional because no power is given to Congress in Article 1, Section 8, which describes the subject matter that Congress actually can legislate on. In terms of education, that is entirely a state and also individual power and right. This is why school choice absolutely matters because parents get to direct the uh, the choice of education for their children. And But when you have government-funded schools, these aren't just public schools, these are government-funded institutions with compulsory education laws uh, that are at in many instances, um, a prescription of the policy of the Department of Education that is an unconstitutional agency, because really, what is agency? It's the ability to, to vest in an agent the power that the principal has that is a legitimate exercise of authority. So agency has to be correlated to the principal. Here, there is no principal in the federal government that would allow the agency of the Department of Education to exercise that authority. And so in all of these instances, Joe Biden is not rationally correlating a legitimate exercise of authority. He's only suggesting tyranny, which is mm. I want this outcome and I'm going to force it because I'm the one in power. That's really the underlying message of everything that the Democrats are championing. You know, th this goes to a point, this raises the question. So I'm, I'm thinking about the Senate Judiciary met earlier this week and they're vetting a potential Biden appointee for federal judge. The questions that were coming from Senator Kennedy in Louisiana and others, you know, He's give me, right, Article 5, Article 2, can, can you, and, and there was, 
there was no recitation. It was clear that this person didn't have a basic elementary uh, understanding of the Constitution. Uh, my, home, my kids are being homeschooled right now, and I'll just tell you, they have a basic notion of the first 10 uh, articles. And so it, it's, it's, it's baffling to think that someone could have a Juris Doctorate, could have 12 years experience uh, at, you know, in the Attorney General's office and serve as a clerk and so on and so forth, but wouldn't have that understanding. And yet you have on Tuesday night at the State of the Union, you're talking about no legal or constitutional rationale. Uh, it sounds as though we have a postmodern presidency. Uh, you know, this is just rhetoric. These are just words. It's about outcomes, but it's not comment. It's it's not commensurate with reality. Well, yeah, and and let me address that point because even though it's shocking to our sensibilities, because we understand that the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and that means something to America. It's binding to our system of government. It's actually not shocking. Um, as someone who went through law school, and I mean, I, this is literally the premise of my book, is objecting to the fact that in American law schools, we don't even read the U.S. Constitution. It's not required, which is insane. However, what modern lawyers are taught in law school is simply to read the other Constitution, which is the opinions and jurisprudence and doctrines of the U.S. Supreme Court and the modern restatements of the law. It doesn't actually matter what the Constitution says. It only matters what the Supreme Court has said that it says. And so imagine in you know your realm of theology, for example, um, Ryan, that if we were teaching future pastors, don't even read the Bible. That doesn't matter. Just read the restatements of what all of these other pastors that in our opinion, just by virtue of their mega church uh, pulpit status, like a Supreme Court justice on the bench, what they have said is doctrine and binding on what they say in their interpretation of the Bible. That's what we have with our modern justice system. So it's actually not surprising that a candidate for a federal a judgeship would have no idea what the U.S. Constitution actually says because it's become completely irrelevant to our modern jurisprudential sensibilities. Lawyers don't have to be intelligent about the Constitution. We just have to be well briefed. We just have to know wow. what's the opinion of the Supreme Court. And it's it is disturbing. It's but this is exactly why we get to these irrational and constitutionally absurd judgments from courts because all they're doing is determining what the Supreme Court has said, not actually what the Constitution itself says. Wow. Okay. So I love that analogy because essentially you have big government over here and then you have big Eva, big evangelicalism over here. And there is some parallel, Jenna, that, that's exactly what's happening. Um, you know, there was, there's even a, a controversy that's kind of brewing in conservative circles over recent statements that Andy Stanley has made. Uh, and if you look at people who are parroting uh, those comments, uh, they're doing so with him as the originator or, or the, 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 principle comes from him, but not from the scripture. So it's kind of like, you know, the Bible says, thus saith the Lord. This The biggest lie that Satan came up with is, hath God said, mm -hmm. right? And everything seems to be based on the 
hath God said, not thus saith the Lord. And I would say the same is true uh, with, with the Constitution itself. Yeah, and, and this is how we get to proof texting and how we get to bad hermeneutic, which is really just you know the interpretation of a written text. And now, obviously, as Christians, we would not draw a parallel to the Constitution and the divine word of God in the sense that it's not the Constitution is not inspired. It's not the word of God. It's not all of the things of you know the sufficiency and inerrancy and those kinds of things uh, that we understand and all agree with that the word of God is. But they are similar in the sense that they are a written document. And so the authorial intent, the principles of originalism, the principles of interpretation um, all still apply because they are similar that they are written texts. And where you get proof texting and the damage that is done is when you parse a word or phrase out of a sentence or out of a paragraph or out of you know a clause, and then you manipulate it to be totally out of context and you build an entire doctrine around it. And then you say, instead of going back to the source text, the best evidence, instead you go to the doctrines that the supreme uh, advocates and jurists and commentators would say this is the binding interpretation. That's what you have in Big Eva as well. You have the people who are the biggest intellectual theological heavyweights saying this doctrine prevails, it's binding. And so then everyone who is lesser than is interpreting the text based on the doctrine that is prescribed by a man's interpretation instead of going back to the original text and saying, wait a minute, what Andy Stanley is saying is wrong because here's the original text and we can't mess with it. In the very same way, we have advocates and uh, judicial uh, advocates who are going into court and they're arguing based on what Justice Scalia says or based on you know what this court has expressed in the dissent or the, um, the majority opinion, rather than saying, this is what the Constitution says. And I don't care whether it's Scalia or it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg or whoever, or how long this particular opinion has endured, it's wrong because it violates the text. And so mm -hmm. we, in any a discipline, whether it's theology, it's philosophy, it's uh, jurisprudence, it's science, it's anything else. If we go based on the subjective doctrines of man rather than what the text or the empirical rational law of the law of nature and nature's God actually empirically uh, shows a self-evident truth, then this is how we get ourselves in a postmodern world. Yeah, man, so well said. Okay, okay. So I agree with you. This is the new normal. This is this is kind of the new politics in America. Um, kind of in in closing, um, are you hopeful in the long term outlook? Are you pessimistic? If we are to win, Jenna, how can we win? What are some things we can do to put the pieces back together for this constitutional republic? Uh, what do we do? Where do we go from here? Well, I'm always hopeful, Ryan, because God is still changing hearts and minds and winning souls for eternity. So we need to rest on that foundational truth that the Great Commission is still being fulfilled by you and me. But we can't ignore the fact that the Great Commission is still being fulfilled, that we don't even though we're getting there, have to whisper in secret the truth because our Constitution preserves and protects our right to speak freely together about truth 
and protects that right for all individuals. And this is why Christians have to engage not only in the public sphere, but also in the political sphere. Because once we have completely jumped the shark, like what the Democrats have done, and they just want to be like God and speak into existence their preferred outcomes. I mean, they are creating law ex nihilo. Basically, it's just, we're going to speak it and therefore it's reality. We have to say no as Christians. We have to first go back to the text and we have to know what the text of our supreme law that does still bind our government to being limited in power. We have to know not just that we don't like a certain thing that the Democrats are trying to propose, but why they have no power to implement it. Because it does not matter whether you and I like it. What matters is whether or not they have the power to actually enforce that preferred outcome. And so if they don't have the power, that should be the end of the conversation. If they do, then it becomes a matter of argument and of policy and why elections matter. But as Christians, we need to be hopeful and we need to advocate not just to win and have the same kind of activist mindset of we're going to force our preferred outcomes. We need to actively conserve, meaning that we need to continue to make advancements to limit government. That seems kind of like an oxymoron, but that's where we're at in this society where we have ceded so much ground to an ever-increasing federal government that we need to make sure to expand our territory back to limiting the federal government. So expand our rights, which will inherently limit the federal government. We need to return to principles of federalism We need to return to the text of the Constitution rather than proof texting. And by the way, our churches and our pastors need to do the very same thing with the authority of the Word of God. Mm, Amen. So well said. Great, great final thoughts. Thank you so much, Jenna, for all you do uh, to defend uh, liberty in this country and obviously biblical truth. Thank you for joining the Give Me Liberty podcast. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you for what you're doing to preserve and protect liberty and also educate the minds of our young people. Everything that you're doing at Liberty University is so important. And I affirm and champion that as well. Thank you. And folks, stick around for final thoughts. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the Give Me Liberty podcast. Please like and subscribe Share our content with others. Only a true friend shares the gift of the Give Me Liberty podcast. What a great conversation with Jenna Ellis. I think it's very insightful to see the parallels of what we're seeing in the modern political landscape, just in terms of where we've gone from 10 years ago, even 20 years ago, a giant leap forward into not only moral relativism or postmodernity, but radical subjectivism, the, the, re, the reality that we can throw out the Constitution, that the words on the page are no longer given their legal and binding authority. They're not even considered. Instead, we're just ramping up rhetoric, rhetoric that is all about outcomes. It's all about collectivism. It's all about government control. But it's not about the power vested in the people. And that is so critically important do not forget it. There is power and understanding, truth. Knowing the truth, the truth shall set you free. As it says in John 8, 58, we must know the truth as citizens and understand the legal framework of our constitution 
It's binding laws and the preservation of liberty. At the same time, if you look at the parallels, not only in the American political landscape, but also in the American evangelical church, the influence of postmodernity and the way that people have relativized the word of God, no longer considering God's word, his divine revelatory authority as sacred, binding, and true, uh, that it has almost no authority in determining uh, issues that are happening culturally all around us in the church. I love the observation that Jenna made there. I think it's so important that as Christians that we understand, we're prepared to give an answer for the hope that's in us, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we know the word of God and we're able to apply it to everyday life. Thank you so much for watching. Until next time, God bless you.